Hello everyone, welcome back to History Snippets. My name is Aaron, and today I'm going to read a little snippet to my friends Ula and Sky, who have no clue who, what, or when I'm going to be reading about. You gentlemen ready? Episode yep. 2. Episode 2, yeah. So this is our second episode reunion. We're celebrating having two episodes out now. So, today... Very we're excited. Be... <laughs> today we're going to be talking about William Henry McCarty. So... We know he was born on November 23rd, 1859, but the rest of his early years are kind of uncertain. He was probably born in New York City. His parents' probably. names are not really known, but some sources did state that his mother may have been named Catherine, and his father may have been named Patrick. So we're going to go with that. This is a good start. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, from what we can tell, his family moved to Indiana sometime in the 1860s when he was about 10. And then from there, they moved to Wichita, Kansas, towards the end of the Civil War in 1870. Now, soon after the move, Henry's father died from unknown causes, and his mother contracted tuberculosis. So I guess we can kind of assume that that's what got the father as well? Because the yeah, father died pretty much like a week later, the mother was said to have tuberculosis, so I don't know. That would make sense. Yeah. I mean, it's the 1800s. Maybe he just chopped his leg off with an axe and then died. I don't know. Or, I mean, he, he was probably 30. I mean, that's, that's elderly <laughs> at that point. Yeah. I mean, that's... Yeah, yeah. He had a good run. He had a good life. Yeah. <laughs> a good so, Got a kid. Hen Henry's mother's doctor told her that in order to deal with the tuberculosis, she needed to move to a drier climate, which definitely would help with the lung issue. So Henry's mother married a man named William Antrim, who paid for her, Henry, and his youngest brother, Joseph, to move to Silver City, New Mexico with him. Oh, what's the catch? Well, you're moving to New Mexico in the 1800s. That's the catch. <laughs> also, <laughs> your doctor says that to deal with tuberculosis, a lung disease, you should move to the dusty desert. <laughs> Fine. Multiple okay. catches. Also, you're living in the 1800s. As a woman with two kids and no fire. I mean, there's, there's a lot of catches. There's only catches, really. This is just red flags. So... When they first arrived, Henry's stepdad, William, uh, worked as a bartender and a carpenter. Uh, both of them were listed on his occupational sheet. I'm not really sure if one was like a side job, like he was a carpenter as a hobby or what was the deal, but he was both a bartender and a carpenter. And he was the town bartender and carpenter. So if you needed yeah, woodcut so or a cup of beer, he was the dude you went to. As he sure. built his own bar, you know, you, you come <laughs> by, you place your order, have a drink, and yeah. Yeah, he'd pull out the saw. Right. Um, but once the gold rush reached the area, William's stepdad, um, no, Henry's stepdad, sorry, William, just bought some prospecting supplies and bailed for the mountains. So he basically just left Henry's mother and her two sons to kind of fend for themselves. Right, oh, hang on. So he paid for them to, to move come in with, with him. him. And then. And then a year later, he, the gold rush. He takes hits. off. Yeah, he just bought. Yeah. A pickaxe, some clothing, a tent, and just bailed for the mountains, and that was him. Adios. Oh, right, okay. <laughs> oh, don't you worry, dear. I'll provide for you. Gold, you say? Goodbye! <laughs> <laughs> if you have a craving for gold, that's... So, to compensate for the sudden onset of poverty, Henry's mother turned the small house into a sort of bed and breakfast for travelers. Sadly, despite the daily prescription of dry, dusty, hot New Mexico climate, Henry's mother did not get better. She actually got more and more sick and finally passed away on September 16th, 1874. Would never have guessed. No. Um, Henry is at this point 14. Upon hearing the news of the death of his wife, William returned from the mountains. When he arrived, he instantly placed Henry and Joseph in two separate foster homes and then headed straight back to the mountains again. Great. Well, my job here is done. <laughs> <laughs> like, I didn't even keep the brothers together. They lost their mother, they lost their father, and he puts them in two separate foster homes for some reason. Father of the year. Um, so, Henry is barely 15, and he's now an orphan in a foster home in a city he'd only been in for about nine months. And he moved from New York to New Mexico, so that's basically across the entire country. Like, he's... He knows nothing and nobody. Now, naturally, being the 1800s, uh, the foster home was absolutely dreadful. It did not provide the room and food for free. The children had to work for it, and Henry was no exception. 
He was assigned to a nearby hotel during the day. He would wash dishes and he would clean tables at the hotel's restaurant. The hotel reported that the boy was very friendly and the manager favorably said about Henry, he was the only kid who ever worked for him that didn't try to steal anything. Henry's school teachers said, quote, he was no more of a problem than any other boy, always quite willing to help with chores around the schoolhouse. This was all about to change. <laughs> On September 23rd, 1875, one week after arriving at the foster home, Henry was caught stealing food from the restaurant. Ten days later, he was caught robbing a local uh, Chinese laundry, attempting to make off with some fine clothes and two pistols. Now, when he was caught, he claimed he was just holding the items for someone else who was stealing them to pull a prank on the laundry owner. But the sheriff was not a moron, and it didn't pass. <laughs> so Henry, at the age of 15, was thrown in jail. Two days later, the thin teenager wiggled his way up the jailhouse chimney and escaped into the night. The jailhouse chimney. He wiggled... Now, he's 15, okay? But every description I found of him described him as being exceptionally thin and lanky. Like, he was 15, he looked like he was about 9, and he was super thin. He weighed nothing, and he was super agile and acrobatic. So he wiggled his way up the chimney. Two stories, straight up like a worm, and out of the jailhouse. Sure. Okay? Um, this was reported by the Silver City Herald the following day. Now, from that point on, Henry was a fugitive of the law, and he decided that if he was going to be on the run from the law as a bandit, he might as well go all the way and be the best damn bandit the Southwest had ever seen. <laughs> so this is where the tale of Henry starts. Now, first, Henry fled to the mountains, where he tracked down his stepfather, who was still prospecting for gold. Um... Their reunion only lasted a few months before William got tired of Henry's stubbornness and kicked him out. Henry stole his father's uh, stepfather's finest clothes, a pair of pistols, and bolted. This was the last time that they ever saw each other. I kind of saw that one coming, yeah. Yeah, a yeah. little bit. I mean, look, it's not right to steal, but... I mean, William's not an amazing father. <laughs> <laughs> so, after leaving his stepfather... Henry headed southeast into Arizona Territory, where he found jobs as a ranch hand. Despite the stable income, no pun intended, Henry kept losing his jobs for various reasons, and on top of that, what little money he did keep, he would gamble away in all nearby gambling dens. I would like to point out, by the way, he's still 15. Um, <laughs> in 1870... Oh, having a midlife crisis. Give the guy a break. Yeah. Come on. Um... <laughs> <laughs> in 1876, Henry landed another job at the U.S. Army Post, Camp Grant. Uh, his job was to haul logs for, that were chopped in the woods back to camp. Now, at Camp Grant, Henry met John R. Mackey, a Scottish U.S. Cavalry private. For reasons unknown, Mackey got discharged from the camp shortly after Henry's arrival. But he's Scottish and it's the 1800s, so we can kind of assume he was just shit-faced and punching people. So that's probably the discharge. Yeah, but he was probably doing that all the time anyway, so not true. why now? Yeah. Anyways, um, so when Mackey was discharged from the camp, he just moved, like, a few hundred feet away and put a tent up in the woods and lived there. <laughs> just, like, right outside the camp. <laughs> Anyways, so Henry and Mackey would meet, you know. he'd uh, Henry would meet him every time he went out to the woods to get new logs to haul back into camp. And the two men quickly became friends, and they decided to steal horses from those soldiers at the camp. Getting like back, friends do. Yeah. <laughs> they would get back at the camp for discharging Mackey, and they'd make a solid amount of cash from reselling the high-quality steeds. Henry is 16. Mackey began calling Henry Kid Antrim due to his youth, thin figure, clean clothes, and happy-go-lucky fuck-everyone-else attitude. <laughs> um, now, Antrim was obviously the surname of his stepdad. Right. So... Um, on August 17th, 1877, Henry was drinking up at a saloon in the nearby village of Bonita, when in walked Francis Cindy Cahill. Cahill was a blacksmith who worked at Camp Grant, a massive brute of a man who had a fondness for bullying Henry. When Cahill saw Henry, he reportedly called him a pimp, which at the time was a negative term for someone who dressed fancy. Remember, Henry always wore fine clothes. He was very, very proud of that. And a couple of pistols. And a couple of pistols. Mm. Now, Henry got up, turned to Cahill, and said, quote, You son of a bitch. Cahill retaliated by charging Henry, picking him up, 
throwing him to the floor before just leaping onto him and attempting to pin him down. Now keep in mind, Henry is tiny. He's 16. On top of that, like, people regularly think he's 10. So Cahill, he's, he's a... this blacksmith literally just picks him up like he's nothing and slams him into the floor. Um, but Henry, due to his small size, just weaseled out from his grasp, dodged most of his blows, then pulled out his newly stolen six-shooter revolver and fired it straight into Cahill's torso. Quote from a witness to the struggle, Henry had no choice. He had to use his equalizer, referring to the gun and the fact that Cahill was quite literally twice Henry's size. When the rancher who was currently hiring uh, Henry, um, a man named H.F. Smith, was asked about where Henry might have gotten the gun, he said, quote, Well, he said he was 17, though he didn't look to be 14. I gave him a job helping around the camp. He hadn't worked very long until he said he wanted some money. I asked him uh, if he was going to quit, to which he said, No, I just want to buy a couple things. I asked him how much he wanted and tried to get him to take $10, for I thought that was enough for him to buy uh, what he needed. But he hesitated and asked for 40 I gave it to him. He then went down to the post trader and bought himself a whole outfit, six-shooter, belt, scabbard, and cartridges. <laughs> wow, kid has style. After the shooting, Cahill was still alive, but he passed away the following morning. Henry was quickly arrested by Miles Wood, the local justice of the peace. Now, there's going to be a lot of kind of confusing things here, because at this time in Arizona... There were sheriffs, but there were also justice of the pieces. There were also marshals, and they all basically are the same thing, but are not on the same team. So, like, if you had a bounty, all three of them would try to arrest you for the bounty, and they'd not help each other. Like, it's basically you have three different types of police in the same state. But they're all official. They're all official, and they don't like each other. It's really, it's going to be... It's weird. Um, anyway, so... But yeah, the local justice of the peace um, arrested him. He was put in custody back at Camp Grant in the guardhouse, where he awaited the arrival of the local marshal who would decide his fate after the murder. Henry had other plans. In the few hours it took the marshal to arrive by horse, Henry had jimmied the cell door open a few inches, squeezed through the gap, and vanished. <laughs> so... <laughs> Henry stole a horse from the camp, and he left Arizona Territory, heading back for New Mexico Territory. During the trip, Henry got ambushed by Apache Indians, who stole his horse but left him unharmed. Sort of. Without a horse and stuck in the middle of the Arizona desert, Henry was forced to walk to the nearest settlement. The hike was miles long and took many grueling days through blistering hot desert. He finally arrived at Fort Stanton in the Picos Valley and went to the house of John Jones, a member of the Seven Rivers Warriors who Henry had known from before. When he arrived, Henry was starving and barely alive. He collapsed at the Joneses and was hidden there from the law as John's mother, Barbara Jones, nursed Henry back to full health. When he had recovered, Henry decided that he was going to go to Apache Tejo, a former army outpost now turned into an outlaw village. The Jones had grown quite fond of Henry during his stay with them, so they have supplied him with a new horse for his trip. So. <laughs> He's going where? It, it, well, there's basically an, a, an army outpost that is turned into an outlaw village, so the army's there no more, and it's just turned into like a bandit village, and it's called Apache Tejo. Alright. We'll need to fit right it in. It has nothing to do with the Apaches who robbed him of a horse, it's just the name that these bandits are like, that sounds cool! Sure, it's the same as the marauding murderers who try to kill us every time we leave. Yeah, so, it's like being in France and naming your village Viking Home. That pretty one. much, yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> so Henry arrived in Apache Tejo in 1877, where he met a fellow bandit by the name of Jesse Evans. Evans was the leader of a gang simply called The Boys, that raided the cattle herds of the surrounding Lincoln County. Since being alone in the lawless frontier was pretty much a death sentence, uh, Henry reluctantly joined up with Evans and his gang. Henry visited his old town of Silver City, where his involvement with the cattle raiders was mentioned in the local paper, but not under the name Henry. He had at this point begun traveling under the alias William H. Bonney. Henry was a distant relative of Anne Bonney, a famous pirate woman, which was a fact he loved to brag about. <laughs> now, <laughs> for sanity's sake, I'm going to keep calling him Henry for the rest of the story. Okay? But everyone calls him Bonnie at this point. Um, Henry is now 18. By the way, I just for fun searched up Anne Bonnie, this pirate woman. 
we are totally doing an episode on her. Absolute <laughs> badass. <laughs> yeah, I kind of figured that yeah. out. Yeah. Anyways, after some time raiding with the boys, Henry started working for an English businessman and rancher by the name of Hen- John Henry Toonstall. As a cowboy to his herds in Rio Felix, a tributary of the Rio Grande in Lincoln County. So basically, to protect his herds from raiders, this English businessman hired one of the best raiders and paid him more than was worth for him to steal his own cattle. So Henry was like a super talented rider and cowboy at this time. I mean, arguably, he's pretty smart. You hire one yeah. of the best raiders to stop other raiders because he knows the tricks and you pay him just enough where it's not worth his time to rob you. Yeah, sure. Why not? Yeah, it's like paying the so, mafia protection money. You just I mean, yeah. No, it's, it's like it's concept. like buying one of the mafia and then telling him, "I'm he- you're here to stop your old mafia." Like he left Jesse Evans' gang and was now protecting herds from the cattle that Jesse Evans used to rob a week before. Right, right. Like he basically just was like contacted Henry. And was like, "Look, that I know you work for that gang and robbed me. I'll pay you to work for me and stop that gang from robbing me." <laughs> <laughs> so, anyways, um, at this time in Lincoln County. There was a trio of Irish-American businessmen, Lawrence Murphy, James Dolan, and John Riley, and the three, uh, these three formed an alliance. Together, the three Irish-Americans controlled basically all economic and political power in Lincoln County, and they'd done so for about seven years. The majority of this power came from their ownership of a beef contract with nearby Fort Stanton, so basically they were the only ones allowed to sell beef to this army camp, no one else. As well as owning nearly all dry goods stores throughout the entirety of Lincoln County. And these three Irishmen together basically just have an iron grip on everything. Like, they're they're not a political party or anything, but if you want to buy land or whatever, it always has to go through these dudes, okay? And nobody likes them. <laughs> now, Henry's employer, John Toonstall, and his business partner, a lawyer by the name of Alexander McSween, were both strong opponents of this Irish alliance. In February 1878, Toonstall's business partner, the lawyer McSween, owed 8000 to James Dolan, one of the three Irishmen in the alliance. And when McSween was unable to pay, James Dolan went and obtained a court order, probably through bribery, um, from the Lincoln County Sheriff, William J. Brady, that claimed he could take $40,000 worth of Toonstall's property and livestock to pay back McSween's debt with interest. So, Toonstall, he's not involved with this at all. Toonstall's friend borrows money from one of these Irishmen and is unable to pay it back. And the Irishman is just like, fine, I'll just take it from you, bro. Okay? So, he owed 8000 to the Irishman, and the Irishman got a court order to take 40000 of Toonstall's livestock, who had nothing to do with this at all. He just happened to know the dude who was borrowing money from him. Well, if you add rent, interest, that seems yeah. fair. So obviously this court order was should not be legal, but it was a legally binding court order, so bribery was probably going on. Like, the, the, the sheriff, William Brady, was known to be kind of corrupt. So, in hopes of pr- protecting his livestock from the seizure, Toonstall told Henry to take his nine best-prized thoroughbred horses and relocate them out from the frontier to his personal ranch. At the same time, Sheriff Brady was putting together a special squad of his own personal men to ride out to Toonstall's herd and seize the animals. On February 18th, 1878, Toonstall got word of the sheriff's squad entering his land, and he rode out to meet them. When the sheriff's men saw Toonstall approaching, they assumed he was coming to attack them, and they shot him in the chest, throwing him off of his horse. Another member then walked up to Toonstall, who was lying unconscious in the grass, took his gun from him, and shot him in the back of the head with it. When Henry heard of the death of his employer and friend, he was deeply affected. He said that Toonstall was one of the few men who treated him as, quote, a freeborn man. At Toonstall's funeral, Henry held a speech where he spoke many kind words of his late friend, and then he ended the speech with, quote, I'll get every son of a bitch who helped kill John if it's the last thing I do. Oh, here we go. And that's the line we put in the trailer. Yeah. (laughs) The murder of John Henry Toonstall sparked a massive war between two factions that would be known as the Lincoln County War, and Henry was right in the middle of it. He is still 18 years old. (laughs) Oh my god. (laughs) After the funeral, Henry met up with Dick Brewer, a local cowboy 
and a small-time lawman in Lincoln County, and a friend of the late Toonstall. Together, they swore vengeance against the Lincoln County Sheriff William J. Brady and his murder squad. They began by obtaining murder warrants from the Lincoln County Justice of the Peace. Remember I said, so there's a sheriff and the Justice of the Peace. So Sheriff Mm. killed Toonstall. So Henry and Dick Brewer go to the Justice of the Peace, who has just as much authority as the sheriff, to obtain warrants against the other It's a fucking mess of warrants. And they're naturally inclined to say yes, because the sheriff's their enemy, so... Yeah. Mm -hmm. It's basically like having three police forces that all are in power, but want none of the others. It's, yeah. Would they arrest each other? Yes. (laughs) <laughs> the right. high court hated it by the way there's me i was trying to dig through the documents of this i had a blistering headache in like half an hour just trying to figure out what the hell is going on because these people are just throwing warrants at each other so anyways um henry and dick brewer uh dick brewer obviously being a lawman himself uh obtained murder warrants from the lincoln county justice of the peace john wilson against brady and his murder squad on february 20th 1878, Henry and Brewer attempted to arrest Sheriff Brady, but they were ambushed by his men before they got to him. Henry and Brewer were thrown in jail, awaiting the arrival of a U.S. Marshal to deal with them. This time, though, Henry did not escape, because he knew that the U.S. Marshal on his way was Robert Weidenman, an old friend of his. When Robert Weidenman arrived... He arrived with a whole troop of soldiers from his own personal camp who promptly seized the entire jail. Then the soldiers captured Sheriff Brady's jailhouse guards, they let Henry and Brewer free, and then they jailed the guards in the very cells that Henry and Brewer had just been in. (laughs) Oh, Henry, you clever son of a gun. (laughs) Um, Dick Brewer, the lawman, then uses connections to establish a group known as the Regulators. This was a group of cowboys, bandits, businessmen, lawyers, sheriffs, ranchers, and citizens who all wanted to put an end to the Irish Alliance and the corrupt sheriffs under their payroll. Many of those in the regulators had lost friends and family to the murder squads paid for for by this trio. When Brewer told Henry about the newly found faction, Henry joined on the spot. (laughs) Naturally. Yeah. (laughs) On March 9th, the regulators captured Frank Baker and William Morton. Both were members of the murder squad who had killed Toonstall. The plan was to arrest them and bring them to justice, but according to Henry, the two men tried to escape during the night and he was forced to shoot them. I'm not sure how much of that I believe, it just seems like a nice cover story for killing two dudes who killed his friend. But that's the official statement, so... Oh, no, they, they, they tried to escape. Well, we found them well, bound and gagged. Yeah, like, they, the yeah, two yeah. men, like, they were arresting them. Like, they were tied up to trees. And Henry's like, they got out, they got away at the same time and had to shoot them both. <laughs> so, anyways, um, they died. It happens. <laughs> yeah. On the 1st of April, the regulators tracked down and ambushed Sheriff Brady and his deputies. A massive shootout followed, with Brady and his deputy, George Hindman, being killed. Henry himself was shot in the thigh. Didn't give up, though. Three days later, on the 4th of April, the regulators tracked down more of Brady's men at Blazer's Mill, where another shootout followed. Buckshot Roberts on the sheriff's side and Dick Brewer on the regulator's side both perished in the battle. After the battle, both sides then issued arrest warrants for members on the other sides for murder. It's There's so many arrest warrants. <laughs> Henry got three himself. He just added them to his ever-growing list of pending arrests. Following the death of Dick Brewer, the lawman who founded the Regulators, Alexander McSween, the lawyer who owed money to Dolan in the first place that started this whole thing, took his place and became the leader of the Regulators. Due to McSween's connections and now the rising reputation of the Regulators, they grew to 60 members. Henry is 19. On Sunday night, July 14th, the Regulators arrived at Lincoln Town and began fortifying. At McSween's house were, among others, Henry, Florencia, Chavez, Jose Chavez, Jim French, Harvey Morris, Tom O'Foliard, and Igneo Salazar. Across the street, Martin Chavez and Doc Skurlock hunkered down on the roof of the saloon. The house next door was defended by Henry Newton Brown, Dick Smith, and George Coe. Two days later, on July 16th, The newly appointed Sheriff George Pippin, who was to take Brady's place after he was murdered by the Regulators, decided to send a sniper team to Lincoln Town to scout the area and pick off some of the Regulators if they could. 
When they arrived, they spotted the men on the roof of the saloon and set up to kill them. Now, Fernando Herrera, one of Henry's men, happened to just spot them as he walked past a window. So he leaped out, fired a revolver, struck one of the snipers straight in the head, Charles Crawford, killing him on the spot. The rest of the snipers scattered. So he's, just, he's just walking past the window, like, the fuck is... And just instantly, one shot kills him from like 200 yards. It's nuts. Clean. Clean. Yeah. <laughs> so the, the snipers just scatter. Um, I can tell why. <laughs> when they returned to Pepin, Pepin was pissed. So he decided he was done messing around, and he sent a formal request for assistance to Colonel Nathan Dudley, the commandant of the nearby Fort Stanton. Initially, Dudley had no... He did not want to get involved in what he considered to be a local fight. He knew the mess that was the sheriffs and justices and stuff of signing warrants to each other, and he <laughs> meant that this was... This was below him. He was an army colonel. Sheriffs were supposed to deal with the stupid bullshit. But then he read about the size of the regulators and the fact that they were now 60 armed men, and he changed his mind. So he has sent a full battalion of armed soldiers to Lincoln Town, a tiny town made of wooden houses, on Friday the 19th. A barrage of gunfire from the soldiers rained down on the small town of Lincoln, <coughs> forcing the regulators to retreat into McSween's residence in the center of the town, where they fired at the approaching army from the windows. After a small standoff, Deputy Sheriff Jack Long and Buck Powell snuck up to McSween's building and set fire to it. Did not give up, the regulators kept fighting until all but one room, the one they were in, was on fire. Then they left out the window and fled. As they were running, in the confusion, one of the regulators, Robert W. Beckwith, accidentally shot Alexander McSween, the lawyer, who dropped dead. In response to this, Henry pulled out his revolver and shot Robert in the face, then kept on running. Henry and the rest of the regulators fled into the night, and none of them were caught. Oh, like, we're talking about 60 men? Yeah. Just, I don't, I don't <laughs> well, know what these soldiers were doing. Point. This well, was a yeah, whole battalion of soldiers. <laughs> who had the house surrounded and on fire, and with the exception of the one regulator, like the two regulators who died, basically, all of them got away. I have no clue what these soldiers were doing. <laughs> Very incompetent. I mean, I guess it was pitch black in the middle of the night, so, you know. Ah, whatever. So, a few weeks later, on the 5th of August, Henry and three other regulators who survived the attack on Lincoln Town were hiding out in another small little outlaw village. They happened to be a few houses away from the Mescalero Indian Agency when the agency's bookkeeper, a man named Morris Bernstein, was found dead. Despite a ton of conflicting evidence that Bernstein had in fact been killed by a corrupt constable by the name of uh, Antanasia Martinez, Henry and the three other men were blamed for the murder. Though later, due to the conflicting evidence, the court was forced to drop the indictments against the men, except Henry, who simply added it to his list and fled town. I mean, a, at this point, does it really matter? No, it, like... it does not. Like, it's just, just put it on the pile, boys. Like, <laughs> and he's still, what, 19? Yes. <laughs> wow. On October 5th, 1878, U.S. Marshal John Sherman sent a letter to the newly appointed territorial governor... Uh, Lou Wallace, a former army general himself. Now, John Marshall, uh, now the Marshal, John Sherman, said that he had warrants for multiple men in Wallace's territory, including, quote, a William H. Antrim, alias Kidd, alias Bonnie, but that he could not get a hold of Henry or anyone else, quote, owing to the disturbed condition of affairs in that county resulting from the acts of a desperate class of men. Now, by that, he meant the ongoing faction wars and the fact that both sides had lawmen and lawyers that were issuing warrants against the other side. So he was just unable to like, get through this massive paperwork. Now, in hopes of providing peace for Lincoln County, Wallace pulled a rather daring move. He simply proclaimed amnesty and freedom for anyone involved in the Lincoln County War, effectively nullifying all of the warrants both sides had been throwing at each other leaving both Brady's men who had killed Toonstall and the Regulators free, innocent men. There was a catch, though. The Amnesty contract had a clause that stated it was only valid for men who did not have any indictments prior to the date of Toonstall's murder, which Henry uh -huh. did. Right. 
Henry is now the only guilty man after the Lincoln County War from either side and kept every single warrant that Brady and his men had thrown at him over the past year. Henry decided to stay low, and he basically vanished for a year. I was unable to find any information about where he went. He just was like, I gotta stay out of this. Um, he's still 19. (laughs) (laughs) So, a year later, on the 18th of August, 1879, Henry and his friend Tom O'Foliard appeared back in Lincoln, where they happened to be witness to a murder. Jesse Evans, the leader of The Boys, who Henry had been a member of a few years back, dragged an attorney, Houston Chapman, onto the street where he shot him and set him on fire. According In to that the, order? Yes. I hope. Okay. It's, it's what it said, so we're going to hope for Houston's <laughs> sake that that was indeed the case. Um, mm-hmm. According to multiple bystanders, Henry and O'Foliard were actually entirely innocent. They were forced at gunpoint by Evans to watch the murder, who was known to be kind of a psychopath. So... Um, on, he- on March 13th, 1879, in an attempt to become a free man, Henry sent a letter to Governor Wallace, the guy who issued the amnesty during the Lincoln County War, and he said he was willing to trade information and statements on the Chapman murder for amnesty for himself. Wallace replied on March 15th, where he agreed to a secret meeting to discuss the situation. Wallace arrived in Lincoln two days later, on March 17th, to meet with Henry. Now... Like the proper gentleman he was, Henry greeted Wallace in a fine, clean suit with a revolver in one hand and a Winchester rifle in the other. (laughs) Um, So, under the meeting, Wallace promised Henry protection from his enemies, meaning the boys, um, and amnesty if he would uh, offer true testimony to a grand jury. Henry didn't agree to anything during the meeting, but they kept in contact via letter over the next few days. On March 20th, Wallace wrote to Henry, quote, To remove all suspicion of understanding, I think it better to put the arresting party in charge of Sheriff Kimbrell, who shall be instructed to see that no violence is used. Henry replied the same day, agreeing to testify, as well as to the terms to be arrested in a local jail for his own safety from Jesse Evans and the boys. The next day, Henry let himself be arrested by a squad led by Sheriff George Kimball of Lincoln County and was taken to court. As he promised, Henry testified in court and provided a statement on the Chapman murder. But when he, when he was done speaking, the local district attorney refused to honor Wallace's promise to set him free, and Henry was taken back to jail. Um, a few weeks goes by in jail, and Henry has not heard a word from Wallace. Thinking that Wallace probably lied to him and would never give him amnesty... He broke out of his handcuffs, jimmied open the jail door, squeezed through, and escaped the Lincoln County Jail on June 17, 1879. That's become the Henry special, man. He's yeah, still 19. Yeah. I like to picture that he climbed out of another chimney. It just happened time. to be another chimney there. He just said... <coughs> Goodbye, boys! <laughs> She's gone. <laughs> so, Henry decided to do his best to stay low and keep out of trouble from now on. That lasted six months. On January 10th, 1880, Henry was drinking up at Hargrove Saloon in Fort Sumner, New Mexico, when Joe Grant, a newcomer to the area, walked in. Henry had been warned that Grant intended to kill him, so he was on guard. Henry walked up to Grant and said he admired his revolver, and then he asked if he could see it. Grant handed the revolver over, and before Henry gave the gun back, he noticed it only had three out of six bullets in it, so he rolled the chamber so that on the next shot, the hammer would hit an empty chamber. As soon as he gave the gun back, Grant raised it to Henry's face and fired. When it failed to fire, Henry smiled, pulled out his own gun, and shot Grant in the head. Henry, quote, It was a game of two, and I got there first. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you clever what a boy. fucking badass. The murder would be written about in the paper the following day. Quote from the Santa Fe Weekly New Mexican, Billy Bonnie, more extensively known as The Kid, shot and killed Joe Grant. From here on, Henry would go by the name Billy the Kid. Mm-hmm. He was now 20. Yep. And this is the tale of Billy the Kid. I'm still going to keep calling him Henry because that's his true name. Because um, he never actually used the name Billy himself. It was The Papers. That was his, like, stage name. Anytime a paper wrote about him, he's the Billy the Kid. But for himself, shut up, phone. He was still, uh, he was still going by either Henry or William Bonney. So. Yeah. But yeah, this is, this is, this is Billy the Kid. <laughs> <laughs> 
For the next month, he hung around Fort Sumner, despite the murder charge on Joe Grant. He developed a fateful friendship with the bartender, Pat Garrett, who refused to testify against Henry on the murder. Later that same year, Henry became friends with a wealthy rancher named Jim Greathouse and his friend, Dirty Dave Rudabaugh. Henry formed a gang called the Rustlers, who survived by stealing and rustling cattle as Henry had done before the Lincoln War. Among the gang members were Tom O'Foliard, Charlie's Bowder, Tom Pickett, Dirty Dave Rudabaugh, and Billy Wilson. On November 29, 1880, Henry, Greathouse, and Rudabaugh were fleeing from a squad led by Sheriff Deputy James Carlisle when they were cornered at Great House's ranch. Um, so basically, they were entirely surrounded, um, and Henry just leans out of the window and yells that he's actually holding Great House hostage. The sheriff had no idea that Great House was a member of the Rustlers. They just knew that he was a wealthy ranchler, uh, rancher. So, Deputy James Carlisle offered to trade places with the hostage. No. Which Henry accepted. No, please. <laughs> Not like this. Not like this. After the trade, and he came inside, Carlisle realized it was all a trick and attempted to flee out the window. But, and this is according to multiple people on Carlisle's side, Henry shot Carlisle three times before he hit the ground, and the man was dead by the time he hit the dirt. So he leaps okay. out the window, Henry pulls out his gun, shoots him three times as he's mid-fall. The shootout ended in a standoff where the squad retreated and Henry, Greathouse, and Rudabaugh escaped and rode off. A few weeks later, Henry, Rudabaugh, Wilson, Charlie Bowder, Tom Pickett, and Tom O'Foliard rode into Fort Sumner. What they didn't know is that the bartender, Pat Garrett, the one who refused to testify against him, had now been appointed the town sheriff, and he was now adamantly set on taking down Henry. We have no clue why he had the sudden change of heart. Over, like, six months, he went from being a bartender and Henry's friend, refusing to testify, to being a sheriff and wanting him dead. I couldn't find any information if Henry had wronged him, or if it was just, like, now that he's in a position of power, he knows that if he takes down Henry, he'll be super famous, or whatever the deal is. But he basically just turns, like, on the spot like that. So, the now sheriff, Pat Garrett, had set up a trap, with a whole squad waiting for Henry and his men. The second they rolled in, the squad opened fire. Somehow, only Tom O'Foliard got hit and died, with everyone else escaping through the town unharmed and off into the night. <laughs> so, on December 13th, 1880, Governor Wallace had had enough with Henry. He posted a $500 bounty for his arrest, which is about $12,500 today, which isn't really that much, because Henry's got like 200 warrants on him or some bullshit, so my opinion, 12 and a half isn't that much, but whatever. He's just a kid. True, he's just a kid. This only fueled Sheriff Pat Garrett even more, and he kept on hunting Henry. On December 23rd, Garrett tracked Henry and some of his men to a house in Stinking Springs, which is a terrible name, by the way. Um, inside the house was Henry, Charlie Bowder, Dirty Dave Rudaba, Tom Pickett, and Billy Wilson. Um, so, Garrett and his men lay in wait around the house, and during the day, Charlie Bowder just walked past a window and got shot in the chest, and the shootout was on. I, I think Garrett was trying to do it a little bit more stealthily, but from what I was able to understand, one of his men just saw Bowder through the window and just got eager and shot him. So instead of being able to capture them all when they came out unarmed, a whole shootout started. <laughs> so... The shootout lasted two days before Henry and the wrestlers finally ran out of ammunition. After that, Rudabaugh waved a white flag out the window, and Henry, Pickett, Rudabaugh, and Wilson surrendered. The prisoners were shackled, hands and feet, and taken back to Fort Sumner, then from there to Las Vegas, New Mexico. They arrived on December 26th to, the crowd, uh, to crowds of curious onlookers. Henry's reputation had spread across the Southwest like wildfire, especially after the Lincoln County War, and the name Billy the Kid was infamous. It didn't help that a lot of the actions of the regulators were now attributed to Henry whether or not he was involved. Which is something I had to take in mind when researching this, because a lot of times, like, if something, if any men, any of the 60 men the regulators did something, people would just be like, oh, it's Billy the Kid. So, like, there's like, oh, he was in three towns at the same time, and he robbed two banks, and he killed four people, and one day, it's just like, he was like, all over, like, it had to, like, weed out what was actually him. So, 
Um, the day after arrival, the prisoners, accompanied by Pat Garrett and his men, were to depart on a train to Santa Fe, but a large mob of armed men blocked the train depot. They were led by the local sheriff, Romero, who wanted custody of Dirty Dave Rudaba, who had killed a local jailer sometime in the past. Pat Garrett refused to give up Rudaba, and a rather heated argument developed with the mob and the soldiers kind of pushing and shouting and shoving, but uh, never actually devolving into a proper brawl. Eventually, Garrett allowed Sheriff Romero and two of his men to come along on the train ride to Santa Fe, where they could petition Governor Wallace for custody of Rudaba. Regarding the tense situation where an angry mob wanted to kill his friend, Henry said he was unafraid and, quote, if only I had my Winchester, I'd lick the whole crowd. <laughs> Regarding his capture, he said, quote, what's the use of looking on the gloomy side of everything? The laughs on me this time. So he's, he's, wow. he's in a good headspace. <laughs> At this point, uh, word of Henry was not limited to the Southwest. The outlaw was the topic of newspaper headlines all the way to New York. So, Henry and the wrestlers arrived in Santa Fe and spent three months in prison awaiting trial. During this time, Henry sent four letters to Wallace in an attempt to seek amnesty, but Wallace refused to contact him. In April of 1881, it was finally Henry's turn to go to trial in Mesilla, New Mexico. After two solid days of testimony, Henry was found guilty of Sheriff Brady's murder. It was the only conviction secured against anyone involved in the Lincoln County War on either side. On April 13, 1881, Judge Warren Bristol sentenced Henry to be executed by hanging. Upon sentencing, the judge said that Henry was going to, quote, hang until he was dead, dead, dead. To which Henry replied, quote, well, you can go to hell, hell, hell. Henry refused <laughs> to say another word for the rest of the trial. <laughs> <laughs> After his sentencing, Henry was moved back to Lincoln, where he was jailed in the top floor of the town courthouse under constant watch by a guard day and night. Wonder why. On the evening of April 28, 1881, Deputy Bob Ollinger took five other prisoners across the street for a meal. Sheriff Pat Garrett himself was away in White Oaks collecting taxes. Oh, no. This left Deputy James Bell alone in the jail watching Henry. During the evening, Henry asked Bell to take him out to use the outhouse behind the jail. When they returned to the jail, Henry, who was walking first up the stairs, leaped around a corner. In the few seconds before Bell came around, he had slipped out of his handcuffs. The second what? Bell came around the corner, he leapt at him, beating him senseless with the handcuffs. During the fight, Henry got a hold of Bell's revolver, and Bell, realizing the fight was lost, tried to run away, but Henry shot him in the back, killing him. I mean, just give Henry a chimney, man. He'll leave peacefully. <laughs> yeah, but, no one needs to be hurt. If there's not a chimney, you die. Yeah. He says you try, try to run away, and then he kills you. <laughs> a later quote from Henry about killing Bell... I did not want to kill Bell, but I had to in order to save my own life. It was a case of having to, not wanting to. Henry, still with his legs shackled together, managed to break into Garrett's office and found a loaded shotgun left behind by Ollinger, the guard currently across the street eating a meal with some prisoners. Knowing that Ollinger probably heard the gunshot, Henry went to the upstairs window and waited for him. Sure enough, a minute later, Ollinger came running across the street. Henry shouted down to him from the window, quote, Look up, old boy, and see what you get. Ollinger looked up and got a shotgun blast to the face from Henry, <laughs> killing him on the spot. Uh. <laughs> it's a terrible quote. Look up, old boy, see what you get. <laughs> Boom. <laughs> Just... um, regarding the killing of Ollinger, though, Henry showed far less remorse, saying that Ollinger was mean to him during his time at the jail and, quote, he used to work me up until I could hardly contain myself. I never felt so good in all my life as I did when I pulled the trigger and saw Ollinger fall to the ground. That After sounds shooting... remorseful. No. <laughs> <laughs> After shooting Ollinger, Henry left the window, grabbed an axe, smashed open his leg irons, stole a bag of guns from the armory, ran outside, stole a horse, and rode out of town. According to eyewitnesses, singing happily as he left Lincoln. <laughs> He's just not giving up. His escape was written about in papers across America, and he was now the most wanted man in the West. 
Henry is now 21. After his escape, Governor Wallace placed another $500 bounty on Henry's head, and Pat Garrett took up the chase yet again. After three months on the run, Garrett heard rumors Henry was back near Fort Sumner, so he grabbed his two best deputies and left Lincoln on July 14, 1881. He first tracked down Pete Maxwell to question him. Pete Maxwell was the son of a local land baron, Lucian Maxwell, and a friend of Henry's. Um, sorry. New page, there we go. Maxwell and Garrett spoke for several hours deep into the night. At midnight, as the pair were sitting in Maxwell's dark bedroom, talking over candlelight, Henry suddenly entered. Um, yeah. Unable to recognize Garrett due to the poor lighting and the fact that Garrett was kind of hiding behind some furniture, uh, he asked, Queen S, Queen S, which is, who is it? Who is it in Spanish? Garrett recognized Henry's voice and drew his revolver, firing twice. The first bullet hit Henry in the chest right above his heart and killed him. A few hours after the shooting, the local Justice of the Peace organized a jury of six different coroners to all confirm that it was indeed Henry that was dead. They documented the location, interviewed Maxwell and Garrett, and confirmed that the body, quote, was the kid's body that we examined. Henry was given a simple wake by candlelight and was to be buried the next morning alongside the graves of Tom O'Foliard and Charlie Bowder. Many of the townsfolk from the village of Lincoln and nearby towns appeared at the wake. Henry might have been an outlaw, but he was never, uh, he never robbed from the poor. He was always kind to poor people and the impoverished, which gave him a sort of Robin Hood-like fame among the commoners. He used to do horse races with children. Uh, basically, so anyone who didn't own cattle loved him. Yeah. <laughs> his grave was marked by a simple wooden marker. In his short life of 21 years, Henry is thought to have killed 21 men, one for each year of his life. Garrett traveled to Santa Fe, New Mexico, five days later to claim the $500 bounty from Wallace, but William G. Rich, the New Mexico governor, refused to pay. Over the next weeks, the residents of Las Vegas, Mesilla, Santa Fe, White Oaks, and other New Mexico cities collectively raised $7,000 for Garrett as reward money, and a year later, the New Mexico Territorial Legislature passed a special act giving Garrett the $500 he was promised from Governor Wallace. Now, I'm going to finish this off with a couple eulogy quotes from Henry's uh, regulator friends who were at his funeral. So we have from Higino Salazar. Billy the Kid was the bravest man I ever knew. He did not know what fear meant. Everyone who knew him loved him. He was kind and good to poor people, and he was always a gentleman, no matter where he was. When in danger, he was the coolest man I ever saw. He acted like a flash from a gun. He was as quick as a kitten, and when he aimed his pistol and fired, something dropped. He never missed his mark. Susan McSween, Alex McSween's wife. Billy was not a bad man. That is, he was not a murderer who killed wantingly. Most of those he did kill kind of deserved what they got. Of course, I cannot very well defend his stealing of horses and cattle, but when you consider that Murphy, Dolan, and Riley, the Irish people, forced him into such a lawless life through efforts to secure his arrest and conviction, it's hard to blame the poor boy for doing what he did. One thing is certain, Billy was as brave as they make him and knew how to defend himself. He was charged with practically all the killings in Lincoln County in those days, but that was simply because his name had become synonym for daring and fearlessness. When Sheriff William Brady was killed, we all regretted it. Not that any of us cared much for the sheriff, but because of the manner of which it was done. Quite naturally, the killing of the representative of justice turned many of our friends against us and did our side more harm in the public mind. Brady was killed by a number of bullets, being shot at by the whole bunch of men hidden behind the adobe wall of the corral in the rear of Toonstall's store. I understood at the time that uh, I understood at the time that Billy said he tried to get Bill Matthews, who was walking with Brady, and did not even aim at Brady. I think his subsequent conviction for killing Sheriff Brady was based on insufficient evidence and was most unjust. I have believed, though, that if Mr. Toonstall had lived, Billy, under his guidance, would have become a valuable citizen, for he was a remarkable boy, far above the average of young men of those times, and he undoubtedly had the makings of a fine man in him. Which, yeah, if Toonstall hadn't been killed, I think Billy probably would have become an amazing rancher or something. Yep. Didn't Henry kill her husband? No, her husband was Maxween, the lawyer, who owed the money. Oh, right, a regulator okay. accidentally shot Maxween, so Henry shot the dude that shot Maxween. Yeah, when they were running, his gun went off, and Henry was just like, well, you're dead. <laughs> There's a lot of people in this story. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Um, and a final quote from Frank, uh, Frank uh, Coe. 
Another one of the regulators? The kids stayed with me at my home for most of one winter, during which time we became staunch friends. I never enjoyed better company. He was humorous and told many amusing stories, and he always found a touch of humor in everything, being naturally full of fun and joy. Though he was serious in emergencies, his humor was often apparent even in such situations. Billy stood with us to the end, brave and reliable, and one of the best soldiers we had. He never pushed in his advice or opinions, but he had a wonderful presence of mind. The tighter the place, the more he showed his cool nerve and quick brain. He was a fine horseman, quick, and always in the lead. At the same time, he was kind to his horses and could save them and have them ready and fresh when he needed to make a dash. He never seemed to care for money, except to buy cartridges. Uh, cartridges. Then he would prefer to gamble for them straight. Cartridges were scarce, and he always used about ten times as many as anyone else. He would practice <laughs> shooting at everything he saw, from every conceivable angle, on and off of his horse. He never drank. He would go to the bar with every, anyone, but I never saw him drink a drop, and he never used tobacco in any form. Now, this is probably a lie because this is the eulogy at his funeral and he's doing his best not to, like... Because he's still a kid, right? So he's like, yeah, no, he never right. drunk and used tobacco, though there's dozens of eyewitnesses that he did. So this is just him trying to be, respect him. Um, <laughs> he was always in a good humor and ready to do a kind act for someone. So that's the tale of, of Henry, Billy the Kid, boyhood bandit. Well, epic but short-lived. Yes. Yeah, I what mean, a he, legend. He Jeez. had a good run. Yeah. <laughs> Jeez. Well, and all this in what six years? Yeah, pretty much from the age of fifteen to twenty-one. Like 20, yeah. he got like <laughs> three months into twenty-one, so it's basically like five years. That's that's quite something. Yeah, I mean, look, he he was vile and he murdered people and he stole, but like a lot of it, I think he did out of necessity. Not really defending it, but like. He would never have gone that way if, if the Irish trio hadn't murdered his best friend and his stepdad did just kind of leave him with no fucking choice. Just put him in a foster home. Like, I mean, it was a rough time. You just did what you could. So. Mm. I wonder what happened to his brother. Joseph? Joseph? Yeah. I have no clue. I didn't actually look into that. He just, like, stopped appearing. So, knowing the 1800s, he probably died of some preventable disease. <laughs> <laughs> probably, <Most> likely, yeah. <laughs> Anyways. Well, that's Henry McCarty. Guys, thanks for joining us for our second episode. We'll go ahead and see you next time. See ya. Bye.